8. And here we go. Here they come. Good morning. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be, be, care may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for sending your son, Jesus Christ, to save us. You call us to walk in the spirit and not in the flesh. Holy Spirit, please create a hunger in us to be filled and grow with the truth that is your word so that we may know you. Help us discern your will and submit to it so we may make righteous decisions that are pleasing in your sight. God, thank you for your word that is a light to the path which leads to everlasting life with you. Please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you guys for reading God's word. Probably the most important part of our day is when we read God's word together, we devote ourselves to these things. Um, so did you, did you hear the kids this morning when they, when they recited the scriptures, they talked about their devotions, right? They talked about being devoted to the apostles' teaching. One of the things that the apostles were devoted to uh, was this doctrine, person, work, and ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I would fear, just like Chris feared last week, that we maybe are not as devoted to that particular teaching of the apostles as we need to be. Somehow the Spirit um, gets confused in our culture, and if not confused, then certainly neglected uh, in our culture. So since that's true, um, I kind of liken it to works of art in a museum, um, if you guys know me, you've heard this story, I don't necessarily enjoy museums, or I did not enjoy museums, but my wife enjoyed museums, and come to find out when you're in your early 20s, and uh, barely out of college, and working the jobs that I was working, you don't have a lot of money, and so on date nights, you find free stuff to do, and Thursdays at the Museum of Fine Arts, it is free, still, to this day, and so you go on Thursdays, and you spend the afternoon with your uh, soon-to-be wife, and, uh, and you enjoy that, right? But there was a time where she would take me into these, um, to that museum and, and, and whatever else was connected. And I would go and I would go, man, this is, I sure do like her, but this is, wow, this is not my favorite. But over time, my appreciation for the works of art grew because I just had to look at them. Like I just had to spend some time not neglecting what was already there, and I just had to stare at them a little bit. I had, to, I had to gaze upon their beauty, and the more I gazed upon their beauty, the more appreciation I had, not just for the museum, but also for the artists behind the works of art. That is except for Jackson Pollock. Do you know who Jackson Pollock is? Like, this is, his, this is like his newest work. Um, I couldn't do that. 
like, I don't even have to be 40-something and do that. I can be four. And I like, and then you get in a museum. And so I don't appreciate this as much. I just look at that and go, okay, like, any, literally my dog could probably do this. Like, and he's blind and has one eye that doesn't work. But that's actually a true statement. I wasn't making that part up. But, um, but like, truly, I don't have a much of appreciation for that. But as I learned about art, I began to have appreciation for the artist, for Van Gogh and Rembrandt. And I remember at some point in my education, this is like maybe back in high school, I remember learning about a guy by the name of George Surratt. Remember George Surratt? Everybody's like, oh, yes, Surratt. No, you're not doing that, but that's that's okay. Um, This is his most famous work of art. It's called Sunday Afternoon. Oh, right, that one. Do you know what's so kind of interesting about this particular piece of art to me is that this isn't a bunch of blended pastels. This is a bunch of dots. This is the end of a paintbrush probably millions of times over and over and over. And if you zoom in, um, you see the particular awareness of the artist. You see all the little dots that make up what was a big picture and a beautiful piece of art, but it is the strokes and the genius of the artist that makes me appreciate that. So I'm telling you all that as a good picture for all of us, that perhaps what we're neglecting is a piece of art here, and that what we really need to do is look at the strokes of the artist so that we can not just appreciate the artist or the museum, such as a church, we need to worship him, worship our king. I had a seminary professor that said this about the Trinity. He said, if you are not particularly Trinitarian, then you are not particularly Christian. And we don't talk a lot about the Trinity a lot because it's confusing and it's a mystery. And we just go, ooh, in an age of reason and in the modern day, it doesn't make much sense to us, so we must avoid it. No, no, it doesn't make much sense to us because we are finite and he is infinite. If we can keep God in our little box, then he must not be the God of all creation. So there's this invitation here to gaze. There's this invitation here to look. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, we really need to talk about the Holy Spirit in this way? Um, I would say, again, we must go to kind of this museum and gaze, particularly today, about the spirit of life. Now, last week, we talked about the spirit of power, that the spirit of power came down and... um, and did what he did, right? He, he filled the believers. He filled them to, be, to love God through obedience in a way that they could not do before. He filled them with power to share the gospel in a way that they could have never done before. Instead, they were fearful and afraid in an upper room. But today, we're looking at the spirit of life, particularly the spirit of new life. And if you look at the scriptures, uh, the scriptures we're going to talk about today, it's about being reborn. The spirit not just of life, not just of new life, but the spirit of regeneration. This idea of regeneration, uh, I'll unpack here in a little bit. But again, this is something that we may go like, I don't know that I need to know about the spirit of regeneration. Um, But um, it seems to me that Jesus seemed to think that religious people needed to hear about being reborn, about the need to be regenerate. And I, you might be going, well, like, well, how does that come about? Well, the most religious person on the planet, 
Notice I'm not saying the most righteous person on the planet. One of the most religious people on the planet was a guy by the name of Nicodemus in the New Testament. He was a Pharisee. He was a teacher of Israel. Um, He knew all of the laws, literally had them hidden in his heart. And Jesus is the one that corrects them. And he says, hey, look, you're not going to even see the kingdom of God in John 3 if you are not reborn. And it was confusing to him. And Nicodemus was like, can I crawl back into my mother's womb? What are you talking about, Jesus? Like literally, those are his words. And so we have to get some clarity about regeneration. We have to get some clarity about being reborn because we do have a need for rebirth. And if you are in this room and you claim to know Christ, truly you have been reborn. But if you're in this room, and there's not been a, a life change, even though you say you believe, then this message is particularly important for you. It's important for everyone, but it's really important for the person that comes to church, that prays prayers, maybe even got baptized, maybe even gives. You might even like adopt your pet instead of go to a breeder. <gasps> How righteous are you? But if you have not been reborn, It is all for naught. You will stand on the wrong side of the gates. And instead, we need to be reminded of our great need. So here is my goal for us today. I want us to gaze at this picture of the spirit of life, the spirit of regeneration in a way that helps us see the miracle of our rebirth so that we might gaze at this work of art and not just appreciate our artist, just, oh, we love Jesus, we love to clap for him, we might even raise our hands, we might even give a little bit, but we would worship him with everything that we are. That's my hope. All right, so let's look, and I do have this like museum art um, theme all throughout our, our, our sermon today. So if you don't like art, this is not going to be your jam. But if you do, then you're like, oh, cool, this is great. All right, so here we go. The first thing that I want you to see is the canvas. The canvas is the most important part for an artist. If an artist has a dirty canvas, it's really difficult to create the piece of art that he wants to create. And so I want you to see first the way that Titus describes this canvas with which God has to start with in our hearts, in our souls, in all that we are. Uh, We need to see that this canvas is not clean. It is not a, a neutral Um, white canvas with which God starts with. It was. At one point in Genesis 1 and 2, it was really beautiful and really clean, and God created all of that, and he said it was good. But then Genesis 3 came along, and it has been messed up and marred ever since. You want to know why it's so hard to sing, God won't let me down? Jesus has never let me down. He's never failed me. You know why, why that's so difficult? It's because there is not a shadow on this planet or a corner of your heart that has not been tainted by the devil himself. If we just take that in, there's all kinds of explanations about how this world is jacked up, and the question no longer becomes like, why do bad things happen to good people? It's why does anything good happen at all? It totally flips it in our mind if we really get a grasp on the canvas. But most of us have the question, why do bad things happen to good people instead? So we miss, we miss what's on the canvas that God is starting with now in our hearts as a result of the fall. So let's just look at the canvas, Titus 3, 3, that Yvonne so eloquently read. 
For we ourselves were once foolish. We were disobedient. We were led astray. We were slaves to various passions and pleasures. Oh, man, we just sat on the front porch passing our days in malice and in envy. And oh, man, we, not only did we hate other people, that was fun, but we also were hated by others. We didn't like that too much. That's, that's, that's the canvas with which God is going to create this really beautiful masterpiece that if we gaze at it long enough, we'll start to worship God even more. Look at this right here. We were foolish. This is who we were before Jesus intervened into your life. This is what the Bible says. So you can't go, well, I don't know if I was that foolish. I mean, I had a PhD or I was an aerospace engineer. No, no, foolish. He's not talking about dumb. He's not talking about uneducated. He's talking about biblical understanding of foolish. And if you look at a biblical understanding, an ancillary reading of Proverbs will tell you the fool is a stubborn person. They don't respond to rebuke or correction. That's a fool. That's you and me before Jesus, stubborn. You and me before Jesus, um, we had no fear of God because the fool says in his heart, there is no God. That's what the Bible tells us in the book of Proverbs. This is the canvas. I want you to feel this. I want you to see this. It is absolutely necessary. We were foolish. We were disobedient. We didn't um, kind of run in the direction of God before Jesus. We were running the opposite direction of Jesus. We saw what was good and we were like, cool idea, I'll go this way. That feels really inconvenient. We ran the opposite way. It says we were led astray. We were blinded by the God of this age, 2 Corinthians 4 says. We were slaves to various passions. You notice the language. Not one word is in the Bible that isn't there for divine intention to convict us, to bring us into worship of our God. Slaves to various passions means you had no choice. You had a master, it was your passions, and you liked it. Now, friends, before I move on, this is a poignant reminder for us. As we now are in, and this may offend many people, but we're in Pride Month, correct? Um, it is a celebration of being enslaved to your various passions. I, I'm, not, I'm not dogging on anybody, but I do think it's, under, uh, it's really important for Christians, believers, followers of Jesus to understand the world will always find ways to celebrate independence from their father. Whether it's in sexual preference or cooking the books at work or whatever your favorite sin is in the deep darkness of a Friday or Saturday night. This is not for me to say, oh, how dare they? That's not me. It is to say, how dare we? And they're no different than us. In a lot of ways, with our passions, just being driven away and being mastered by them. The difference is what comes when God intervenes, that we no longer are slaves to those passions. So teenagers in the room, like the narrative all over your life, in your hallways, wherever you are, the narrative is just be enslaved to your passions. That's who you once were, if you believe. There's no longer who we are in Christ. Our passions and our preferences used to master us, and we celebrated it, whether it through all kinds of different drunkenness and orgies and, and sorcery and malice and envy and hostility, it goes on to say. We passed our days in malice and in envy. 
not just one sin. There's all the sins that we loved. We wished evil for others, and then we coveted what they had. I was thinking about passing our days and malice and envy. It's like the opposite of the Bluebell commercials that are on. Like, you know, the Bluebell commercials that come on the radio and the TV? Have you heard these? Have you seen these? Like, it just makes you want to just go back to the olden days, the good old days, you know? It talks about this. What does it say? Bluebell uh, tastes just like the good old days. This is why I'm not on the worship team. I'm not going to sing it. But that's what Bluebell tastes like. So does malice and envy. Malice and envy just taste just like the good old days. So when we, when, we hot, when we get all hopped up on being malicious, wishing evil for people, coveting what they have, we passed our good old days by doing such things. We hated others and we were hated by others. We had relationships that were marked by hostility, manipulation, scorekeeping, and payback. Isn't that a beautiful canvas that God had to work with? That's who you once were. Were. Past tense. Because something really magnificent happened. But before we get to the magnificent thing that happened, I want to keep just ruminating a little bit on this canvas. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you were dead in your trespasses. You were dead in your sins in which you once walked. You followed the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. The spirit, that's the enemy, is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived. All of us once lived, here it is again, in the passions of our flesh. The things we really want to do. Seeing that the mark of a Christian is not doing what you want to do anymore. Carrying out, all oh, we carried out the desires of our body. What my body wanted, we just went ahead and ran after it. And the mind. Our mind were not captured by the truth of the scriptures. They just spooled out to wherever we wanted it to go. And by nature, as a result of all this, we were children of wrath like the rest of mankind. We deserved God's wrath. Colossians 1 says you were once alienated, you were far off, and you were hostile in your mind. You were enemies of the cross. Are you seeing this picture? We were not neutral. It's very, very important to you and for me, for us to remember the state we once were in. We were not happy little trees on a canvas like Bob Ross wants us to think. We were evil. We were dark. We were not good. We were not somewhat sinful. We were sinful through and through. We were, some, we were not sometimes obedient. We were wholly disobedient. Jesus, friends, came to die not for our worst deeds and our worst motives. He came to die for our best deeds and our best motives. Y'all feeling that? Isaiah 64, 6 says that we have all become like one who is unclean and all our righteous deeds, all our good deeds are like a polluted garment. Read the NIV, and you can find a little bit more color to that explanation of a polluted garment. It is just as Jesus said. Our first birth necessitates a second. And so God does something amazing. 
something miraculous on that tainted and dark canvas that really has no white left on it, he does something amazing. And look at this work of art in verses 4 through 7. This is the work of art that God has now painted for us so that we may gaze on it and find him to be beautiful. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Are you seeing the picture? Are you seeing the piece of art that God has put before us? The canvas was as dark as you can get, and God does not respond first with judgment or condemnation. John 3, 16, 17 through 19 will say, He doesn't come into the world to condemn the world, but to bring this condemned world out of the darkness and into the light. He says, you are condemned already. We just painted that picture. So Jesus comes, and the Bible, Titus 3 says, goodness, loving kindness appeared in Jesus Christ. Loving kindness is the Greek word philanthropy. You want to know the, 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 the person that has ever walked the planet, that is the best philanthropist ever to walk the planet, his name is Jesus a common conversation I have with those that have differing opinions on gender and sexuality and all sorts of different things. And I just go, yeah, 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 but you can't be mad at Jesus because he loves people the most. He's, he's, the, he's the most high philanthropist there is. And he says certain things about these ideas. Certainly, there's something here for all of us. He doesn't come with condemnation. He comes with an invitation into the light because it says right here, his goodness, his loving kindness has appeared. He saved us. It says we didn't save ourselves, right? He saved us in verse five. We were the passive person in this whole exchange that we did not deserve. Are y'all getting this? Now, remember I asked y'all to talk back a couple weeks ago. It, it goes on every week. Like, I, are y'all getting this? Y'all getting this? Okay, all right, come on. I need a little help every once in a while. He did this not because we come to church faithfully, that we give, that we were baptized, that we prayed a prayer, that we raised our hands during worship songs. Ooh, now you're really holy. That we were charitable. No, he didn't even do any of these things because we were really good at evangelism, because we visited the widow or the orphan, which are like the top pinnacle of Christianity. No, he did it according to his own mercy. Ephesians 2, 4 says he was rich in mercy, so he made us alive. We were once dead. He reached into our hearts, took something out, our dead, stony heart, and put a new heart in us. I will read that in just a moment. He says in verse 7, so that being justified by his grace, it is grace and it is mercy, and both are in concert in our salvation. Mercy is that God did not give you what you deserve. Are you guys getting that? Thank you, Eddie. Mercy is that God does not give you what you have earned. 
And grace is God doing for you that which you cannot do for yourselves. And mercy and grace are beautiful ingredients or different paints on the palette that he now throws up on this canvas and makes something that was not there. I don't know about you, but what do you do? This is especially poignant for me this morning. What do you do when, you, when, when people don't appreciate what you do for them? What do you do whenever people are like, yeah, I'm good. All that time and effort and energy you've poured into me, or maybe my kid, or whatever, like, I'll pass. I'll pass on showing any appreciation, not to mention, I'm gonna, I'm gonna maybe backtalk you, or maybe uh, cut you down behind your back, or maybe have some choice words with my other little friends over here. What do you do in those moments? Because I'll bet my, I know my reaction is not the reaction that God had. I would like to say some things. I would like to confront some people. And Jesus, with his goodness and his loving kindness and his mercy and his grace enters into our mess and does something new, does something amazing. All right, so we're in the museum. We've seen the canvas. We've seen behind scenes, not Jackson Pollock's, but someone else that can actually paint. Right, we've seen behind the scenes, we've seen this canvas. Now we see this beautiful piece of art that, that all of a sudden is like, oh my gosh, that's mind-boggling. And now I want us to zoom in on the brush strokes. Because I think we affirm most of this in, this in this room. Most people in this room are affirming most of this. But now if we could just zoom in and just really find appreciation on the little dots. Really find appreciation and worship for the brush strokes because here are the brush strokes because you're thinking so far, what does this have to do with the Holy Spirit? I'm gonna tell you. Let's look at the brush strokes in verses three, no, no, chapter three, the end of verse five and the first part of verse six. He saved us, not because of uh, works done by, uh, by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. How? How did God save us? How did he do it? By the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. You want to know the brush strokes to this masterpiece? It's this. We, most of us, have this idea that Jesus is the person of the Trinity that saved us. I'm about to maybe commit heresy in most of your minds. Jesus made salvation available for the full payment of your sin on the cross. And after that availability, the person of the Holy Spirit is the actual member of the Trinity that enters into your life and makes you new. Like, he's the one that you should have some deep appreciation and worship for this beautiful, unfathomable plan of God from before the foundation of the world to whenever you got saved and after this world comes to an end and the new one comes, that somehow, in some crazy thought of God's mind, he saw what he saw in the canvas and the picture that I just painted and didn't see anything in us worthy of being saved, but because of his great mercy he comes and he picks you out and he washes you clean 
And he renews you by the power and the presence and the person of the Holy Spirit. Whoo, come on, y'all. That will mess you up if you let it. Jesus paid for our sins, but that is not the whole picture. No, no. Regeneration, this word, is regenesis. It's re-beginning. It's a new start. It's a restart. It's a rebirth. When Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, he's saying, you have to be born from above, not just from your mom, but, but from your father. You've got to be born from above. And this happens through the washing and regeneration and renewal by the person of the Holy Spirit. God himself didn't just historically die for y'all. He came and made it possible for you to believe. Personally, particularly, not generally, oh, he died for the whole world and somehow I'm included in that. No, he died for you, Will. And he came and washed you, Cindy. And he came into your heart, all of us who believe, and he took something out and put something in. This is what uh, one particular scholar talks about. He says, the work of the Holy Spirit in regeneration is to unite the elect sinner to Christ by breathing new life into that dead, you hear this, y'all? Dead and depraved sinner so as to raise him from spiritual death to spiritual life, removing his heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh so that he is washed, she is washed, born from above, and now able, now enabled, now has the power to repent and trust in Christ as a new creation. You don't repent and then you're saved, really. In the theological order of things, you are reborn and then you're allowed. You are, you are purposed, you are empowered to repent and believe. So we may say, come and find your Savior and trust in him and pray and depend on him. But behind the scenes, God's been working before the foundation of the world so that you could even want to do those things. What a beautiful picture. It's a picture that God's been painting for a long time. Ezekiel says this, chapter 36. I will sprinkle clean water on you. He's not talking about baptism in water, by the way. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. I will sprinkle clean water on you. If you ever dealt with shame, look at the language. He's cleansed you. He's sprinkled clean water on you. You don't walk into a church and dip your finger into and then put it on yourself or wait for some magical person to come and sprinkle it on you. The Holy Spirit did it in your heart. Look at what he says. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols, I will cleanse you. Whoa, my idols? You're not gonna destroy me because I don't love you, Jesus? No, no, I'm gonna cleanse you from all that. And I will give you a new heart. Thank you, Lord. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone. I'm not going to just like somehow work with what we've got there and renovate. I'm taking it out. It doesn't belong here anymore. And give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you. And cause you. 
to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey its rules. We had a master, it was sin, it was death, and now we got a new master, and it is love and life and righteousness. He causes us. You look at the language here in the Bible, he says he poured out on us richly in Titus 3, that the Holy Spirit was poured out on us. Y'all know like those big victories that, that coaches have, like Super Bowl, National Championship, I don't know if they do this in the World Series, but then the coach wins and all their players come over with a big thing of Gatorade and they just, they, they pour everything out on that coach and they just celebrate and they're like, yes, come on. You know what they don't do with that big thing of Gatorade? They just don't go, boop, here's a drop. Celebrate our victory with a little drop. And neither does God with you. He takes the jug of the Holy Spirit in some ways. This is a terrible analogy that I'm saying. but He takes it and he pours it out all over you. He doesn't keep some for himself. He can't do that. It is himself. Then he gives you everything that he has for you. He pours it out. You don't have JV Holy Spirit. You got the varsity level. Like the top of the top, God himself has been poured out on you and in you. So don't say you can't obey or it's too hard or that neighboring challenge, I'll pass. I'm an introvert. Come on, man. Let's reach some people with this good news. Sometimes I'm reminded of the times that I used to go to the Butterfly Museum as, as when my daughters were younger, my son didn't get the privilege of all the fun things my daughters have because we were, we're doing baseball and softball now. We chased them around. So my son, I don't even know if he ever went to the Butterfly Museum, but we used to go all the time, and it was always miserable. But we would go for the sake of our daughters, and um, you wear something colorful, and you hope that a butterfly will land on you, and it's like all for fun, right? There's this little room before you go to the fun part where they try to educate you. Um... <laughs> And they talk about the life cycle of a butterfly, right? And you go from a caterpillar, and you go from this larva stage, and you go to the chrysalis stage, and then you're, ooh, you're a butterfly. And then you go, and you see the fruit of all that. And you're like, oh, man, look at all these butterflies. It's really, it's really actually cool. This last week, they had the death flower or whatever was in there, the, the corpse flower, rotting corpse. I'm good. I'm going to pass on that week. But it does remind me of this reality of church, speaking of museums. Sometimes. Just sometimes, I think that we go, come to church, it's a bunch of butterflies, it's a lot of fun, and in reality, we're a bunch of caterpillars. We actually don't look. We actually overpromise and underdeliver on how we live. And when people look at us, just telling you right now, statistically speaking, when people look at us, when the world looks at what we do, you know what they see? They see a bunch of people that disagree with them and that meet a lot. Those are the statistics. That's what they say about Christians. They don't like things, and they meet a lot. That looks like a caterpillar to me. But we're saying, no, 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 we're brand new. We got wings and colors. We're awesome because of what God did for us. Just ask us, we're really cool. And they're looking at you and go, but you, like, just, you crawl on the ground, like there's not anything special about you. I'm wondering, if some of us just need to hear the reality of regenesis, of regeneration, of the Spirit having truly made you new, 
You're not crawling around on the ground anymore. You were foolish. You were a slave to your passions. That's not who you are anymore, y'all. You don't have to sin anymore. You can say no. Like the idea of the 12-step program is, is in the church that I will always be this particular person, an alcoholic or an addict or a sinner or that or this or the other. Like I understand and actually, the 12-step program has changed more lives probably than the church at this point in, the, in this last century. But if the new creation has come, the Bible says the old is gone. And most of us need to remember and walk in this new kingdom that he says you can't even see it until you've been reborn. But if you've been reborn, he calls you a little flock. And then he says, it is my pleasure to give you the kingdom, little flock. Jesus' pleasure to be generous with you with all that he has. You want more proof? Right here in the Bible. Look at what it says and we're done. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs Heirs according to the hope of eternal life. No longer slaves, but sons and daughters. Do you see the regenesis? Do you see the beauty and the brush strokes here of the Holy Spirit making us new? That all of this is working in this grand plan of redemption. That he would not leave you as you once were, but make something completely new and paint a beautiful picture in your life. And you go, why did you ever do that with me, Lord? Because he's rich in mercy. Not because of the righteous deeds that we do. Because he's a good and philanthropic savior. He loves you. Why does he love you? Because he loves you. Well, why does he do that? Because he's, God is love. It's what he does. Not because of anything that we've done. Oh, what good news that truly is if we will gaze, if we will stare, if we will read, and remember we're no longer what we once were. God took all that out. He washed us. He regenerated us and made us a new creation. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, thank you for paying for our sins. And thank you for sending the Spirit to particularly and personally make us new. We would never believe or, or worship or follow you or want to say no to our passions if not for your Holy Spirit. So Holy Spirit, we're grateful for you making us new. And if we are not made new in this room, just as Nicodemus, we may have questions about that. We may have misunderstandings about that. We may have assumptions about that. But, oh, Lord, Holy Spirit, would you help us have a curiosity about what it means to be made new by your Spirit, by the power of the blood of the Son, and to the honor and glory of our Father. Help us work all this out. It's a mystery to us, but, Lord, you've made it, some things clear in the Scriptures, so help us.
The Bible says that we should insist on these things, verse 8 says, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. Whatever good work you have for us this week, Lord, may we be devoted to them. We, these things need to be insisted upon because we resist them. May we repent and believe again and again by the power of your spirit in deep gratitude for all that you have done. May we honor you, that we truly believe and demonstrate that we have new life because of the presence of your spirit and the rebirth that you've generously given us. We honor you and we praise you, O Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.